2005, Pulitzer Prize-winning author and scientist Jared Diamond wrote the bestseller Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed. This followed his success with his previous bestseller, Guns, Germs, and Steel. Based upon Dr. Diamond's research, the National Geographic Channel has taken a look into our future. To understand the possible collapse of our present industrial society, Nat Geo imagines an expedition in the year 2210 where our descendants try to discover what it was that brought our present civilization down. Joining us to talk about this National Geographic program and Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed, the book that inspired it, is its author. We're very pleased to be able to say welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. Jared Diamond. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. Your research into how past societies failed has shown again and again that mismanagement of natural resources has proven fatal. Collapse documented this for 500 pages. Can you give our listeners a few examples of how people have gone wrong in the past? Sure. Three examples which will be recreated vividly in National Geographic's documentary that airs on their channel tomorrow night are the fall of Maya civilization in Mexico and Guatemala, which was the most advanced civilization in the New World before Columbus, the fall of the Anasazi in the Four Corners area of the U.S. Southwest, the most advanced society in North America, and then the fall of the Roman Empire. So those are three examples of very successful past societies that collapsed and warn us what could happen to us if we don't get our own act in order. And was there a common theme to those particular ancient civilizations? Yeah, there are common themes. Common themes include the depletion of environmental resources by over-harvesting environmental resources, like in many cases we're doing today. Common themes include climate change that did in the Maya and the Anasazi, which is a major theme today. Common themes include problems with enemies if you get weakened, which is a familiar issue today. Common themes include problems with your friends on whom you, that's to say friendly countries on whom you depend for essential imports, which is familiar to us with our relations with our petroleum supplying friends overseas today. And then one's own political institutions that result in a society either making good or bad decisions, and that's coming up in the United States with the elections in California and elsewhere in about five weeks. Well, I know this special doesn't necessarily get into this, but I, I can't visit this topic without at least citing the discussions you, you've put into, uh, into the book and also an article in Discover Magazine years ago about what happened to Easter Island. I thought it was one of the scariest things I ever read and a, and a profound environmental lesson. Yeah, Easter Island's a dramatic example. Easter itself um, does not figure in tomorrow night's National Geographic video, but it, it is a vivid example because it's an isolated island on which the people cut down eventually all their trees, but this was a society that didn't have metal, and so they depended upon wood for tools and construction, as well as depending on trees to protect their crops against soil erosion. So they were committing ecological suicide, and they eventually ended up in civil war and a population decline. Easter Island is a vivid example of societal collapses. Well, many people have pointed out that there are aspects of our industrialized society leaving us vulnerable to, to our own ecosystem collapse. People talk about water supplies, energy resources among them. As you look forward in the future for this special, what factors do you think leave us most vulnerable to the type of collapses you've seen in other societies? There are about a dozen factors that leave us vulnerable, and they're things that we talk about all the time. They include water, 
here in Los Angeles, about half of our water comes from you in Northern California, but you in Northern California have your own requirements for water, so there's competition for water. People talk a lot about climate change, global warming, which is having a big effect in California. In the National Geographic video tomorrow night, probably the most gut-wrenching part of the video is some actual footage of farmers in the Central Valley using backhoes and bulldozers to pull down the fruit trees that they planted, destroying their own farms because there just isn't enough water to maintain their farms. Then other problems besides water and climate change are, of course, the problem of energy, deforestation, overfishing, population growth, toxic chemicals. You get a list of about a dozen major problems. Well, a, f- a few decades ago, there was uh, a much talk about a crisis in human population, and that seems to fade away. Of seems to have faded away as food production uh, has kept pace with growth. You've made a good case uh, in, in collapse in other places. I think that the genocide in Rwanda was the result of population pressures. Do you do you feel that issue is finally getting back on the front burner? The issue of population, yes, it's on the front burner. For example, very close to our shores, the country of Haiti which is the poorest country and the most overpopulated country in the New World. Haiti is, uh, has been in the headlines because of their earthquake, but even without the earthquake, Haiti was already poor and desperate, partly because there were just so many Haitians, far more Haitians than the country can support. The United States, with due respect to the United States, there were too many Americans. One American consumes as much as 32 Africans. So while Americans worry about the population explosion in Africa, the whole world should be worried much more about population growth in the United States just because Americans consume more, much more than do Africans. I've heard speculation back and forth on this. I was curious, what, do you have a sense of what population the Earth will be able to sustain? Well, it depends upon how we manage our resources. As far as fish and forests are concerned, If we managed our fish and forests well, it's estimated that we could extract enough wood and enough fish from the world's forests and fisheries to support as many people as we've got now and to go on indefinitely. Other people estimate that there are already too many people and that the world could support only 2 billion people in the long run. I think what one can say is that we've got the number of people that we've already got, that's going to be hard to change, but what we can change is our consumption rate. If we would lower our consumption rate, then we would have a much better chance of surviving with the people that we got in the world. And Dr. Diamond, I know you came to UC Davis uh, last year for the Harlan II Conference on Biodiversity. Where would you place loss of biodiversity among uh, threats to our future? I would place loss of biodiversity among the dozen problems, big problems for our future. Loss of biodiversity, of course, includes loss of bluefin tuna, which are economically very valuable, means loss of Atlantic swordfish and cod, which were economically very valuable until we overharvested them. But to take a more homely note, the loss of earthworms. Earthworms replenish the fertility of the soil, but China has already lost lots of its earthworms, and the decline of earthworms in China has been responsible for a decline of something like 20 or 30 percent of China's agricultural productivity. So don't think just of charismatic species like spotted owls and grizzly bears. 
think also of those lousy earthworms and delta smelt on which our ecosystems depend. Wow. Are there some environmental issues today that you're particularly optimistic about, or at least you're not particularly worried about? There is no environmental issue that I'm not worried about, <laughs> and there is every environmental issue that I'm cautiously optimistic about, because all of our environmental problems, we know how to manage them. All we need is the political will to decide to manage them. For example, here in Los Angeles, I grew up in the East Coast, and first I heard about Los Angeles 50 years ago was the hard air quality in Los Angeles. Well, the fact is that over the last 40 years, the number of people in Los Angeles has increased and the number of cars in Los Angeles has increased, but air quality in L.A. is much better than it was 40 or 50 years ago because the federal government and people took our air problems seriously and we got lead out of gasoline and we instituted smog checks and other things. So despite there being more Los Angelinos driving more and more cars, air quality here is better than it was 40 years ago. And if we can solve such a difficult problem as air quality, you can bet that we can solve all our other problems as well if we choose to do so. This uh, leads right into the last questions I had for you about what to do um, if we're to avoid that terrible fate like they show in the special of people sleuthing out in 2210 uh, what, what happened 200 years before. Um, what, what, what must we start doing now? The first thing I would start doing now is turn on your television set at 8 o'clock tomorrow evening <laughs> to the National Geographic <laughs> video because National Geographic really did a great, vivid job. I didn't do it. They did it. A vivid job of depicting past societies that did collapse and depicting what our own society might look like 300 years from now if it does collapse. So you watch this video, and I think you get motivated to do the things that we know about. The things that we know about are consume less energy, get more of our energy from sustainable um, sources, manage our water problems better. If you watch the video tomorrow night, I think you increase your motivation to do the things that you know you ought to be doing. Well, some may not may not catch the video, and, and I just want to uh, maybe, maybe we could suggest to listeners if there's one or two things they might be able to do immediately, some practical actions uh, to maybe escape this future fate, what what would those be? Vote. Vote intelligently and manage the world's resources sustainably. Those are three things that we can do within the next five weeks. All right. There's some a lot of controversy about things like uh, uh, simple things like plastic bags. Do you, do you have an opinion on, on, on whether we should be cutting back on those and such? Yeah, sure, we should be cutting back on plastic bags because plastic bags don't biodegrade. Now, we should be using either bags that do biodegrade, or we should be reusing, recycling bags. Um, for example, um, my wife, when she goes shopping, now is using the same bags week after week, and they're very nice, and they're pretty bags, and, and she doesn't throw them away, and it means we are not um, generating plastic bags that will end up in the landfill for the next 10,000 years. Well, I guess my final question, Dr. Diamond, is uh, what do you estimate the odds of us escaping a collapse to be, assuming that we, we get off our butts and start to act? I estimate the odds as 51%. <laughs> In our favor. In our favor, at 49% against us. But it all depends upon whether we make the right decisions. If we make the right decisions, I estimate the odds as 100% in our favor. Very good. Well, we're, we're just at the end of my questions, Dr. Diamond. Anything else you'd like to just uh, put forward for our listeners? The only thing I'd add for the listeners is be grateful that you have, that, that we listeners have great radio stations like your station, because the thing that makes me most optimistic is the media, radio, television, newspapers that give us the opportunity to learn 
from the past and from distant places in the world. The Romans didn't have radio stations. If they had, they might have been warned about what they were doing. Well, the National Geographic Channel has produced a program based upon Jared Diamond's book, Collapse, How Society Choose to Fail or Succeed. Dr. Diamond, I want to thank you very much for speaking with us, and I hope that we can have you back on the program again in the future to talk about your work, perhaps when you return to UCD. Thank you. It's nice to talk with you. All righty. All right, and in a new story that's certainly topical related to what we're just talking about, there have been claims lately that uh, scientists may have missed yet another collapse that may have taken place right under our, uh, our very noses. Certain American archaeologists are saying that the Amazon Basin was once the center of a vast civilization and that perhaps 100,000 people lived in the area, which is more than lived there today, by managing the forest and enriching the infertile soils down there to feed their people. Article about this by Juan Ferrero in the Washington Post notes that certain American scientists have found huge swaths of what they're calling terra preta, so-called Indian dark earth, land made fertile by mixing charcoal, human waste, and other organic materials with the notoriously infertile soil of the rainforest. They believe they found orchards of semi-domesticated fruit trees, which appear to the untrained eye like forest untrammeled by man. Frankly, I kind of wish we'd asked Jared Diamond about this, because apparently it is controversial. Betty Magers, director of the Latin American Archaeology at the Smithsonian Institution, says that these new theories are based more on wishful thinking than science. This is one that might be best to uh, let simmer for a few months and see what the scientific consensus uh, will be at that time and then report on it. So I think, I think that's what we're going to do. But in the wake of all this talk about uh, uh, Muslims and, and, and the alleged attack on Western civilization being directed by uh, radical Islamicists, this correspondent was attracted to the article uh, in truthout.org. It was actually an op-ed piece by Evangelos Valiantos, uh, a Greek individual, I'll wager, who commented about a 2009 film, which I was not aware of, called Agora. It's from the Spanish movie producer Alejandro Amenabar, which zeroes in on the clash of Greek and Christian civilizations in the 4th and 5th centuries, which took place in Alexandria, Egypt. Noted the author, what Christianity did to the Greek culture of Alexandria was paradigmatic of why the Greek world turned upside down and Rome itself and the West fell to the barbarians and the subsequent millennium of darkness. Alexandria, founded by Alexander the Great in the third century BC, was a center for Greek culture for a thousand years. Alexander initiated the Hellenization of the ancient world and Greek became a local language. And authors, be they Roman, Jewish, or Christian, who wanted to read and write books in that era, did it in Greek. But when Christianity came to power in the fourth century of our present era, this, uh, this era was a province of Rome. It had been so for about 400 years. The Christians at that time resented the polytheism of the Greeks and Romans. They also didn't like books that differed from the Bible. And when, as in Alexandria, there was a vast quantity of Greek and other non-Christian books, and Greek scholars who were teaching philosophy and science and openly worshipping the gods, the situation inevitably would get out of hand. In fact, in 391... The Archbishop of Alexandria, Theophilos, was behind the destruction of the Library of Alexandria. It may come as a surprise to many uh, uh, so-called Christians who are 
talking ill of Islam, that it was Muslim culture that preserved a lot of the ancient writings of Greek, uh, Greek antiquity so that a renaissance could take place. The standard policy of the Christian kings was to destroy such manuscripts when they found them as heathen. Anyway, sounds like this is a movie that may be worth looking into. Stay tuned. And isn't it time we had some good news about the environment? How about this from The Economist, which, by the way, generally has a really good science section week in and week out. Article from the September 11th issue. Said the magazine, understanding how the oceans absorb carbon dioxide is crucial to understanding the role of that gas in the climate. It's rather worrying, then, that something profound may be missing from that understanding. But if Zhao Nianji of Xiamen University in China is right, it is. For he suggests there's a lot of carbon floating in the oceans that has not previously been noticed. It's in the form of what are known as refractory dissolved organic matter and has been put there by a hitherto little regarded group of creatures called aerobic anoxygenic photoheterophilic bacteria, or AAPBs. If Dr. Zhao is right, a whole new sink for carbon dioxide from the atmosphere has been discovered. The article goes on. The main way that CO2 is absorbed by the ocean is through photosynthesis by planktonic algae. Basis for the food chain, of course. When these creatures die, their remains, those bits that are not immediately eaten anyway, sink to the sea floor, where some are eaten and some are buried indefinitely. These remains are known in the jargon as particulate organic matter. Some of the organic compounds the dead creatures contain, though, dissolve out of them and into the water. This dissolved organic matter was not, until recently, thought to be an important component of the total. But Dr. Zhao noticed something odd about its distribution in the sea, which was basically that it didn't correlate with where you find the planktonic algae. Turns out previous researchers have been tracking only these, a small fraction of the total of these molecules, the portion composed of molecules like sugars and L-amino acids, which we all metabolize in our bodies, we being living things. They had missed a whole host of molecules that cannot be easily metabolized. These include D-amino acids and compounds called porins, lipopolysaccharides, and humic acids. Because they're not metabolized, these molecules are referred to as refractory. When they start tallying this stuff up, then uh, the chemical map matches that of the planktonic one. And the reason this matters, I know you've been waiting for this one, is that 95% of the dissolved organic matter seems to be refractory. Thus, Dr. Zhao estimates that the amount of carbon stored by the oceans in this way is equal to the amount in the atmosphere in the form of CO2. This, is, this could be some pretty big news. It does open the possibility in the future we may be able to harness these AAPB bacteria to uh, remove the excess carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and put it in the ocean in a form that uh, will basically stay put. Of course, as the article notes, how this might be done is obscure at the moment, for the organisms are still barely understood. But, just you wait. We're going to learn about these things, and we may be able to manipulate this to our advantage. I certainly hope so. And on that happy note, let us take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. When we come back, we're going to pay a little visit to one of the local cannabis dispensaries in the greater Sacramento Davis area. <laughs> 